0: And welcome to another podcast by the conflict law center at war today we're very happy to be joined by joshua craze joshua craze is a writer who is currently writing a book about war violence and bureaucracy in south sudan he has a phd in sociocultural anthropology from uc berkeley and has been published in the guardian al jazeera bbc radio 4 amongst other places so i came across you uh, by reading a fantastic article that you wrote in sidecar called gunshots in khartoum And then I listened to you on various podcasts, including the one by uh, Michael Walker more recently. And it was just, you had such a fantastic insight and such a deep understanding of the conflict. I really wanted to invite you here to talk to our audience about the conflict. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure being here. Thank you.
0: So I wanted to start off. Um, we will talk later on, I guess, about the major international actors which are part of this conflict. Um, but just to for now focus on the main two personalities in it, Hemeti and Al Burhan. Can you just talk to us about the roots of this conflict and, and how it started? I know, sorry, that's a really loaded question, but we'll we'll talk a lot more about it in detail later on.
1: Sure. I mean, I think the there's two sort of origin stories you could talk say about the conflict. One is very briefly the eagle-eyed historical conflict is that there was a dictator in Sudan um, since 1989, Bashir. And the way Bashir ruled was to have different rival military factions. So he was very worried about a coup against his regime. He came to power in a coup coming from the army where he comes from. So instead put up a series of different military forces and the last of these forces, and it's turned out in some ways the most important is the RSF or the rapid support forces under Hemeti. And so the, the historical sort of reason really is you have these rival security forces all vying for control of the economics of the state. And after Bashir falls in 2019, and we can get onto why that happens, the army feels itself under threat from the civilians. They think that this sort of like model of a military state is gonna be ended by civilian participation. And so Hemeti and Burhan are unified. Burhan becomes the commander of the military and the head of the Supreme Council, whereas uh, Hemeti is the head of this Rapid Support Forces, so a militia group that was used by um, Bashir in Darfur. And these two forces basically work together against the civilian government, leading to a coup in October 2021, where they come to power. Then there's a year, basically, of a military regime in Sudan. And that military regime really, I think, on their own standards, fails. Hemeti says it himself in December of last year. It fails because it can't address the economic crisis in the country. It fails because it has no real social base. It has no real social support. At least Bashir had a sort of base in a variety of Muslim Brotherhood Islamism, at least at the beginning of his regime. The army had none of that. And so basically they were forced back to the negotiating table with the civilians. And those negotiations themselves, which led up to something called the Framework Agreement in December of last year, were, The thing that that made it it was no longer the case. It was the civilians against the military, but it was these two military actors trying to pick up support where they could, both from Sudan's many rebel groups, also from Sudanese civilian actors, and also from regional players. And what was agreed in December? Well, what was agreed in December in theory was that there will be an agreement in the future. Like many Sudanese agreements, what the framework agreement did was put, like push the, the, you know, the 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 can down the road. And fundamentally it did that on security sector reform. And the question of security sector reform fundamentally is, should the RSF be merged into the army? And this is an existential question for Hemity. And I'll just finish with saying, and it was this like disagreement about security sector reform that led to the current conflict.
0: Right, right. And in terms of uh, the diplomatic efforts that have gone into this, it seems like it is a marked disaster for Western diplomacy, because apparently it was UK and the US meeting up with these actors that kind of aggravated tensions going forward. And also the fact that you've had, um, even in terms of the South splitting off, you've had, uh, and I think that you've alluded to this in the sense of it being evangelical Christians who uh, were really in support of the Southern Sudanese, and then you had them become independent in 2011, but in terms of how, ha, what has been the international involvement in this conflict and how has it helped or hindered both parties?
1: So one of after Bashir falls in 2019, the, the quads, as it were, so Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and America and so on, push the military into a transitional government. And that transitional government um, is formed between the forces of freedom and change, a variety of Political parties and civilian groups and the army. So, from the beginning, the international approach has been to say that any realistic transition has to include these military forces. Mm. And so, I think one of the great critiques of especially Americans' foreign policy over, you know, since 2019, over the last four years, is that it's continually kowtowed and tried to bring it, give a place to both Hemeti and Burhan, even though both men have shown very little interest in giving up any power or moving to a genuinely civilian transition. And I think one of the ways that came through is that there was a debate within the State Department policy between the envoy, Feltman, and the Secretary of State for African Affairs, the person leading African Affairs, uh, Molly Fee, and Feltman wanted to impose sanctions after the coup on these two commanders, after they got rid of the civilian part of the transitional government, and Fee blocked them blocked those sanctions and said we need to deal with the generals. So I think one huge critique is to say that from the beginning they have marginalized the one genuinely democratic force in the country which are the resistance committees, these groups that really led to the fall of Bashir and a locally organized um, political groups that want an absolutely civilian government. And um, that's so that's one line of critique which I think is strong, but I think another one that we have to bear in mind is that the position of the internet of America and Britain and Norway and, you know, the other actors that traditionally have been involved in Sudan is nowhere near as strong as it once was. When I was in Khartoum, just in the run up to the coup, the week before the coup, I remember talking to um, a variety of Sudanese politicians and Emirati politicians about what they, whether a coup would happen, and one of the Emirati politicians said, in in response to the American position, which was like, if there's a coup, we will cut off aid. We will, you know, we are a big, strong power. He was like, what are they gonna do, invade? And there was a memory here
0: of Mm
1: -hmm. what happened. Kabul has just fallen, right, two months beforehand. So there is this sense that actually the major powers determining things in Sudan today is not America. It's the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. They are the two most important players and I think for all the like justified critiques one should make of American policy in Sudan, one should not also forget the, the lack of um, room that they have to maneuver because they are simply not as important.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that recession from the international plane and um, the recession from international importance. And to go back in a way to the to the major actors they're both being supported separately by different Arab countries. So in the sense of RSF and Hamati being supported by the, by Egypt and especially by Sisi, and then you have the Gulf in the form of Saudi. I think actually Saudi's not decided who is really supporting, but is it the so, UAE definitely supporting Hamati?
1: So it's it's obviously complicated. On the one hand, Egypt like was the colonial power along with England in Sudan. And it built the army very much in its image and even during the coup the thought really was in egypt that why can't we have a regime like we have here down there and that's crucial mm-hmm. for egypt because having a regime that supports it in sudan is also a bulwark against ethiopia's project to dam the nile which right. fundamentally changes the water can or could fundamentally change the water supply into egypt so the arm the the, the, the egyptian army is so firmly behind Saf, Burkhan, the Sudanese army, that it's sort of holding its nose at the fact that the Sudanese army contains Islamists from the previous regime. And of course, historically, the Egyptian army is fundamentally against the Muslim Brotherhood. that was, you know, right. that's why they intervened against Morsi. Um, the on terms of the Gulf, the, the UAE has extant relationships with Hemeti. A lot of the gold that Hemeti mines, which provides his income. Um, which is all sort of artisanal gold mining in Darfur, largely in Darfur, not entirely, Um, all is basically flown to Dubai. So that's Mm -hmm. where he initially made his connections. Then, of course, he used, he rented out his soldiers as mercenaries to the Emirates to fight in both Libya and in Yemen. On the other hand, the Emirates also have links to, um, to Burhan, and they have been playing both sides. And I think, on the one hand there's a personal perspective in the emirates like so some princes back the government some backs burhan some princes back hemeti but the personal perspective is they want to keep those flows from the gold mines alive and the possibility of mercenaries alive on the other hand their their position is very realpolitik they want they see sudan in some ways as a regional neighbor because of the red sea connection and they want ports on the red sea and they want stability on the red sea Saudi, again, like, when the coup happened, promised support to Burhan and Hemati, and has played both sides. It's probably slightly more in a pro-Hemati camp, but, again, the, the Saudis are themselves divided, and that division's actually quite effective, I think, for both the Emirates and um, Saudi, because they can have different members of the royal families reach out to Burhan and Hemati separately.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, then Chad is studiously neutral in this affair. Chad is on the western border of Sudan, and the group, um, the Mahriya that uh, Hemeti comes from have mem- clan members in both Sudan and in Chad, and indeed members of his family, are, or like his broader clan, are in government, in oh. Mahmoud government in Chad. So for Chad, it's very important to remain neutral because on the one hand, they don't want to antagonize um, Sudan, who would then sponsor a conflict in Chad, as it has done before, on the other hand they don't want to come out um as anti-Hemity because that could be very disruptive to the politics of Chad.
0: Right. So those right.
1: are some of some of the sort of the important regional questions that are happening right now in, in Sudan.
0: Yeah and I think the um the interesting thing for me reading this was the story of Hemity and him coming out um as this leader of the RSF from being a camel trader And I think Alex DeWall described it as his ascendancy is also indirectly the revenge of the historically marginalized. And I think, especially coming from this part of the world, the global South, the power of a good story can't be underestimated. And I I just wanted to talk to you about that in the sense of him versus the Khartoumi elite and how that plays with people, especially in his hometown, in his home region of Darfur.
1: So... There, I mean, you know, Alex's position, I think, is something like there's been, which is the first part is true, historically, the dominance of the center, the riverine elite in Khartoum and its satellite cities, using the peripheries of the country to extract resources and labor. And that's the fundamental model of capital relations in Sudan. And Hemeti is a figure from the periphery, um, as now he's fighting a war in Khartoum, is really the wars that the centre has always fought in the periphery, finally being fought out in the centre. And I think that's true as far as it goes. I think it's also important to say, though, that Hemeti himself is a creature created by the centre, right? The center strategy was to empower militias in the periphery to fight against other rebel groups. So Hemeti fought from 2003, you know, for a decade, against the Darfuri rebel groups. And it's important, right? Like, so he fought against Manawi... Um, He fought against Jibril, he inflicted pretty bad defeats on them, but his troops also committed, you know, absolute atrocities, Mm -hmm. sexual abuse, violence, destruction of villages, looting of resources against the people of Darfur. And I think that gets missed sometimes in this coverage of like Hemet is the great figure from the periphery, which is to say like he is a creation of the security services and he's not popular. Like I think the one like weird, really weird, interesting thing about this conflict is that neither man is popular. Neither okay. man really has a social base. Like they are really two act like two creatures created by um the by Bashir's system who've turned against each other. But if you know, like right now um the RSF is largely holding Khartoum, if they're forced out of the capital, then they will go back to Darfur. But they will not meet a good welcome in Darfur, and we can name the Different groups, right? Like without wanting to get too into the weeds, like, um, Abdul Wahid al Nour has a rebel group that's never been part of the government, um, waiting for him. There are the forces of Manawi, there are the um forces of Jibril. So, there are two different rebel groups, both of which have largely thrown their money in with SAF at the moment, and um, who had historically fought against uh oh. Hennity. And then even among the Arab groups in, in Darfur, and we have to remember that the Maharia, the group that um, Hemeti comes from is an Arab group who've used Arab nationalism as an ideology to attack non-Arab groups like the Masalit. And that's the sort of the social base of a lot of the fighting we're currently seeing in el Janena and Nyala and El-Fashab. And that violence seems really quite bad. It's very hard to get really accurate stories from Darfur at the moment. Um, but the, but even within the Arab groups, the SAF has sponsored the return of an old Sudanese um, Arab militia commander, Musa Hilal, to come back. And he's also likely to be waiting for Hemeti in Darfur if he has to flee Khartoum. So fleeing Khartoum would mean the generalization of real war in Darfur, very probably. But it's not like he's the hero from the periphery. I think he's okay. like pretty hated in much of Darfur. He's also hated in much of Khartoum for much more, um, you know, racist, elitist reasons that he is considered a hick from the periphery. So I think there's mm-hmm. this, this is sort of like terrible um, mirror game in which, in the center, he's a peripheral figure, can't be trusted, uneducated, um, et cetera. But in the periphery, he's a central figure who right. is, you know, like a creation of the security services and is like, I think, like the great tragedy in a way of Sudan is that it is true, as Alex says, that the there's long been this like center-periphery tension, but the figure who now is representing the periphery is himself a creation of the center.
0: Hmm, okay, that's really interesting. And in terms of how do, how would you portray how, what is your opinion of him in terms of as a strategist? Because I know that RSI, I think you mentioned this, that RSF hired a French PR firm and they're using very humanitarian, very human rights legal language uh, to portray what they're doing compared to what the other side is doing. And I find that such an interesting take on this in in the sense of this non-state actor, paramilitary force who's hired a PR firm to to improve its image.
1: Right, I mean, I think from the beginning, like if you see Hemetis sort of rise through the ranks, it is like an improbable, amazing story. Um, of how he got where he is. And I think post-the coup, he's I mean, from even before that, but certainly post the coup, he's trying to position himself as a statesman.
0: So right. Burhan
1: is not a very charismatic figure, he's an old commander, he was chosen for his acceptability, really. Um, I think it's likely that Burhan will be replaced sooner rather than later by someone closer to the old regime that is actually um in command of a lot of the fighting at the moment, as I understand it. Um, but the Hemity has like, been at pains to position himself as the statesman who can sort of lead into a civilian transition. And indeed, in December, during the framework agreement negotiations, it was Hemity who was reaching out to the civilian political actors, while Bar was reaching out to the rebel groups like um, Mini Manawi and Jibril Ibrahim, and these people that I mentioned just earlier. And part of that has been trying to position himself using PR firms, using this human rights language, as mm-hmm. like an acceptable actor precisely because it's known that he's thought of as a sort of militia leader who also, let's not right. forget, was responsible for um, huge war crimes in mm-hmm. Darfur. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think what really shot him in the foot was appearing as he did in Moscow on the day of mm-hmm. the invasion of Ukraine. And, I, and, and the, the fact that he still has links to Wagner who do some um, mining have some mining operations in Sudan And I don't think he also I think he radically misjudged the degree of hostility more generally in the region and internationally just against non-state actors. I think there's just there's a huge pro-state bias in all international bodies because they're bodies of states and they don't want to set precedent by recognizing rebel groups. Hmm. And I think that's a huge um, element of what he's facing is the fact that now it's very hard. Let's say that. Hemity wins we'd have to discuss what winning looks like and he controls Khartoum and he controls much of the country it's still not clear what he would do because no one is going to recognize him um mm. I don't think as a legitimate ruler he can then announce like a, a move to civilian government um and maybe people play ball but it's hard to sort of see his off-ramp because for all his you know French and before that Canadian PR firms he's um no one's buying it no one's buying that this is a legitimate force that could take the country into a civilian transition and for all his pr firms unfortunately the actions of rsf soldiers in the country but particularly in khartoum have not covered themselves with glory right they've gone on whole scale looting and ransacking of humanitarian organizations civilian resources government hospitals and they've been involved in the killing of civilians in Um, and egregious sexual and gender-based violence, so they haven't also sort of impressed upon the Sudanese people, most importantly, um, that they are a real sort of army for Sudan. Mm -hmm.
0: Hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the the Russian involvement in the conflict with the Wagner group. Uh, there was a CNN report that came out, which was talking about, which had mapped all of these uh, flights which are taken off from Libya and they belong to the Wagner group. And then there were a lot of counter reports kind of rubbishing the claims a little bit and saying that what well, is typical American red scaring in the sense that they're overblown, they very much overblown the, the Russian involvement in the conflict. Um, And some people were even going so far as to talk about it as a new battleground for a new Cold War. So what do you make of the the Wagner Group and its involvement in the conflict?
1: I mean, it hasn't really had any involvement in the conflict yet. Um, There are like Wagner operatives in Sudan and they have been historically close to Hemeti. uh, But as much as the Wagner Group is close to Hemeti, Moscow's retained pretty strong ties to uh, Burhan. So mm-hmm. Russia has feet in both games. I okay. think the thing about the Wagner Group, if you look at PA or Mali, is that they really need the invitation of, mm-hmm. of, of, of a state um, to really get involved in the conflict, right? They are like a weak force and let you, until you let them grow to be a strong force. Mm-hmm. And I think Hemity still wants, you know, to position himself as a legitimate statesman. And he knows that in that regard, the Wagner Group are a you know, a red line. Like, if he invites the Wagner group in, right. then America's just like, we're done with you. And mm-hmm. I don't think he wants to do that, right? Like, he, he knows that, that the negotiations will be under the aegis of Saudi, the Emirates, and yeah. uh, and America. And those are the three crucial international players. And Russia just doesn't really figure in that. Okay. It doesn't have really extensive um, <clears throat> material interest in the country. There's been bandied about the building of a port, but that hasn't happened yet. I mean, the Emirates also want to build a port on the Red Sea. There's a, like, it is a crucial country geostrategically, geopolitically in terms of the region and and in terms of the Red Sea. But I don't think that there's a, there's a strong role for Russia, even in the near future, despite the recent claim by Wagner that they're pulling out of some parts of Ukraine and redeploying to Sudan and elsewhere.
0: Even in terms of the the American interactions with the country, I kind of just wanted to go back to that a bit in the sense of um, Bashir and what happened post him in the sense that you had uh, the liberalization of the economy, the IMF stepping in, and also Sudan was pretty much forced to um, normalize relations with Israel. Um, to get off the state-sponsored of terrorists, And as Pakistan is one of the major holdouts of uh, recognizing Israel and normalizing ties with them, that's something that's quite interesting for me. And we're also currently in an IMF chokehold. So both of those things apply to us. Mm-hmm. And and it's something which is quite worrying to see in the sense that the US constantly acting for Israel's interests at a time of crisis in any kind of Arab country, Muslim country. Um... And the effect that IMF measures have had, they've been terrible in Pakistan we're currently having 40% inflation. Um, and I think it's a challenge in all fronts, political, economic and environmental. So how do you think the actions post-Bashir played out in, in leading to this beyond the um, beyond what we've already talked about, about the, the creation, his creation of these military factions?
1: Mm-hmm. So Bashir really, Um, The the fall of Bashir's regime begins in 2011 when South Sudan secedes, Mm -hmm. and when South Sudan secedes, they lose 75% of their foreign currency, Sudan does, um, because they lose control of South Sudan's oil. And from that moment, Bashir is really on a creaking economic engine because he has this sort of form of transactional politics where he keeps buying off military commanders, potential rebels, using oil money, and now the oil money is gone. So he tries to re sort of orientate the Sudanese economy, still making it a basically export led economy, um, reliant on extracting resources from the peripheries. But now that resource is gold rather than oil, which is where Hemanty comes in and makes his fortune. Right. That, th- but that gold is not enough, actually, um, to really like, save the economy. And so he tries to cut subsidies. And it was the, the cutting of subsidies on fuel and on wheat. And they were really subsidies for the urban, say, middle class, but for the urban population. The urban population eats bread, eats wheat. Um, The rural population largely eats sorghum and millet in the north. Um, So these subsidies were cut, and that led to sort of widespread urban protests, which ended up bringing down Bashir. There was a moment in those protests when I think the civilians could have pushed for the army to entirely leave power. There was enough people on the street, there was enough force, but instead (laughs) partly due to the international community, partly due to the political parties themselves who were slightly scared of the street, partly due to genuine concerns about the danger of civil war, which I think were real concerns, um, they joined a transitional government. And the transitional government sort of excluded a lot of the more radical socioeconomic voices from the street and instead began a process, which I think has really intensified in the present which is to orientate Sudanese politics to international consumption, mm. rather than to domestic actors. And I think okay. that's a really worrying part of the current peace agreement that we could come to later. But what that meant right then was that the first um, finance minister in the transitional government, who was himself and uh, World Financial Institution Alum, stood up and said, we need to relieve Sudan's debt. And mm. the way they did that actually was to continue a policy enacted by Bashir, which was to cut the subsidies. Mm -hmm. And in theory, there was a World Bank scheme that was going to come in and take up the the slack. But that World Bank scheme never really got underway due to infinite bureaucratic errors, massive technocratic overestimation of -hmm. the Sudanese banking system's capacity, and so on. And so it really plunged the country into economic crisis, further food insecurity. And that sort of set the stages for a deepening unpopularity of the civilian government, which was again like trying to qualify for the highly, you know, the HIPC, the Highly Indebted Countries Index, um, and gain a bunch of money from the internationals. And so then it did a bunch of other things. For instance, America held off, really opening up the spigots of, of finance until, as you mentioned, um, Sudan recognized Israel and then it was removed from the state sponsored terror which enabled this money to flow. So you found that the international community really were interested in producing a sort of 1990s neoliberalized economy of austerity, the cutting of subsidies, the removal, like paying off foreign debtors, and a regional politics of sort of realignment and containment, where Sudan, like Saudi, um, comes into the orbit of Israel at least, like you know, for show, even if not substantively. What that did, of course, was really destroy the coalition and the popularity of the civilian government. And that didn't like create the coup, but it did enable some of the ground of the coup to happen, I think, by creating such unpopularity for the civilian government.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And what do you mean about that then being part of the current peace agreement? Are you talking about the ceasefire that was just recently agreed or?
1: Yes, so a ceasefire was signed right. yesterday in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia i yeah. supposed to come into effect today, along with humanitarian corridors. But a lot of this, again, is is designed for, I think, international consumption. It's very, it, it's been, this is the ninth ceasefire. I'm yeah. almost like losing fingers on my hands to count them. None of them have been observed. You know, the running joke is that the ceasefire is agreed so that well, um, Perth, the, the UN envoy, will stop phoning people. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say, like, the war just continues. Yeah. It seems mm-hmm. likely that the war will also continue here um, despite the ceasefire. The ceasefire is done in the same way that you know the RSS propaganda on humanitarianism is done to show the international community that they mean well. Right. And I think there's, right, like the, the, what, 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 what are these talks? Well, they're talks between the military actors. There's no civilian actors there. Um, and in a sense, even if both sides at one way are losing this war, Because they're weakening themselves without anyone gaining a clear victory in another way. I think internationally what's happened is that they've strengthened their position relative to the civilians, Mm. right? So there's almost like there's always I mean, this is even this is a simplification, but it's complicated enough. There are these two wars like thematically, right? One is the war between the military and the civilians and the Mm. other is the war between these two military actors. And the war between the two military actors, even though it's weakening them both, is strengthening them internationally, vis-a-vis the civilians, because these negotiations have just cut out all real civilian interaction. They've become negotiations between military powers, as if this country was actually about military power. Mm
0: -hmm. In the sense that there's been undue focus placed on civilian rule and fair elections.
1: So, like elections. Let's leave aside elections because that's a whole other question. But since two thousand nineteen, the the international mantra on all parties. I mean, the Emirates, Saudi, America has been: we must talk to the military. Having the military in government is part of the only game in in town. Um, We also need a respectable voice that we can do business with, and that voice has to be, you know, from the political parties. So another thing that the transitional agreement that's made after Bashir Falls does in August 2019 is it puts into power a lot of political parties that while some of them have like deep sectarian roots in Sudan some of them you know like the Nasserist party and the Ba'athist party um don't really have much political import anymore they're sort of like zombies of the agreement itself and but crucially people they didn't bring into power are the resistance committees that actually led the struggle against Bashir because they don't fit into this model of Organized political parties get, that can then compete for elections. So I think there's there's another um, make it even more difficult. Another struggle in, in Sudan really, which is between forms of recognized organized politics that have existed in the country since it's the beginning. Which is twofold really. One is the army, mm-hmm. Burhan's army, created on the on the image of Egypt's army, and two are the sectarian political parties forged you know, in the it, like in the run up to independence, uh, well, like in the run up to independence from the Anglo-Egyptian condominium against these newer forms of struggle, these newer forms of politics, like the resistance committees. And I don't think the international community knows how to handle them or really right. how to give an account of what Sudanese politics is about. Because you, I think you had, you know, this like enormous r- struggle in 2013, revitalized in 2018 that brings down Bashir And then what the international community has done, I think, from the streets perspective in Sudan, is just try to marginalise the one legitimate political force in the country since Bashir fell.
0: And that's in the form of the resistance committees.
1: Yeah, the resistance committees have had no place. And I think one of the interesting things about this conflict now is that all of the humanitarians have withdrawn. They're all working out how to get back in at the moment, um, Mm -hmm. which will be a disaster we could talk about. But in the absence of the humanitarians, the people really like taking reminiscence from abroad, taking money from friends, um, moving people between safe houses, working out which street is safe, redistributing medicine, medicine distributing food, have been the resistance committees, which is to say that oh. there is a fight inside the state between these two military actors that really kind of reveals that the state is this predatory operation. And those th- that are actually doing the work on the ground of the state, right, itself, are the resistance committees.
0: Yeah, and it it was interesting to me reading about this, because um, the corporatization of Sudan's military um, is something which is quite novel, but not new to Pakistanis at all. We have the military here selling cornflakes, so you have um, a, a, a kind of conglomerate, which the military does in the sense that they sell goods and services and also real estate and I think that that is similar to what the military does in in Sudan in the sense that they own massive amounts of real estate and uh, they have all of these corporations which just uh, means that they they're even more involved in governance and in business and kind of expands their zone of power.
1: Yeah absolutely I mean I think that's what Bash- I mean, it existed before Bashir, but Bashir really enabled it with a wave of privatizations in the 1990s that effectively went to power state or figures connected to the security services. So the army, but also the RSF, but also the National Intelligence Service, um, you know, own banks, stores, real estate, construction, mining. And what they're being threatened with by a civilian transition is not just that the army isn't in political power, but that it loses that economic base.
0: Right. Right.
1: And I think, and, and it's that economic base, which is not just an economic base, but I think it's a whole mode of political relation. Because if you really look at what what Bashir used the militias and the different parts of the army to do, he used them to subjugate the peripheries such mm. that oil and gold could be extracted from them. Right. Okay. So there's a whole economic model bound up in the way that the army and RSF and so on have managed to build up these empires. And I think the real question that all of the peace agreements signed since, you know, the fall of Bashir in 2019 have avoided is, what does Sudan look like? Mm -hmm. What's the model of center-periphery relations? Because if it's going to be the case that it's still an urbanized center taking resources from the periphery, and the periphery not controlling its own resources, then we're going to have another war. I mean, okay. that war won't end, right? Like it, ha- there has to be a reimagination of Sudan's political economy, and I don't think that anyone has actually come to the table to frankly discuss that because all of the military actors have so much to lose.
0: Yeah, I was reading about the center periphery relations, and I kind of, I. I the thing I was struggling with was that I was like, but this just happens in every country. So even if you look at it in terms of the UK, London has is this, you know, this cosmopolitan, full of globe-trotting gro- elites, and that's partly why you had Brexit, because the rest of the country was not getting anything out of uh, the EU and was actually losing a lot from it. I, I grew up in the north of England, so... Um, my entire county went entirely blue because purely mm. because of Brexit. And similarly in Pakistan, you have the Punjabi hegemony in the sense that everything goes to one province and other provinces, especially in the North, especially in Balochistan, are left very much under-resourced and yet their resources are exploited for the benefit of this hegemony. But so ha- is it different to what happens in other countries or is it something which is more stark in Sudan?
1: I mean, I think, you know, center periphery relations, obviously is a, a theory of Marxism that's existed since the sixties. I think if, if you take the example of, of England, it, the, the, it's not just about that resources are concentrated in one place rather than another. It's that the reason that the center is rich yeah, is because the that's... periphery is poor in right, Sudan, right. right? Like they are taking the gold And they're Mm. using that gold or they're taking the oil and they're using that oil to enrich their constituents in the center and importantly they're gaining access to foreign currency Mm. through the sale of those resources which is enabling the buying of exports Mm -hmm. so that's a particular version of a center periphery model right like i think (laughs) london absolutely dominates england um on the other hand like post like given the post-industrial Nature of England. It's not that um, London's wealth is directly produced by the right. immiseration of the north in the same way,
0: yeah. right?
1: And it's not that what that and it's not that that immiseration is a structurally necessary feature of the centre, right? Because the only way the centre gets forex, gets gets foreign exchange, gets its dollars to buy commodities is from those resources.
0: Okay, so a different yeah.
1: model like threatens the whole. Like logic of the political economy, whereas London, for instance, has made a lot of money, like totally disreputably, in my view, by being like a safe place for um, varieties of dubious um, Gulf and Russian politicians to park their money. You know, I grew up in London, and when I go back to certain areas which are just empty houses bought up basically as real estate speculation, I can see the difference. Yeah. So I think that's like it's not. Yes, you know, center-periphery relations dominate many post-colonial situations, both in the, you know, the metropoles and in the former colonies, I think Sudan's is a particular is a particular version of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's a particularly egregious version of that. And a particularly complicated version because also of the overlaid, very complicated racial dynamics to it.
0: Okay. And what are those racial dynamics in the sense that the Arabs dominate Khartoum and then you have well, non-Arab?
1: What? Yeah, well, but that's why it's really complicated. So like it's as much so groups, for instance, in the periphery, like the misaria in the in Kortofan, or the Rezagat and the Mahriya, the um hematis from, from the Rezagat, are both Arab groups, so-called. Okay. Um, but they're peripheral actors, and they're not thought of as educated or from the center.
0: Mm-hmm. On the
1: other hand, there are also non-Arab groups which are looked down by looked down on by Hematees groups okay. as non-Arabs, or people are still referred to you as slaves, for instance. Oh, right. um, there's still a lot of, because there's a lot of historical slave trading in the Sudanese yeah. area by Egyptian, yeah. Turkish slave traders. Um, so, But then you also, in Darfur, you have groups that become Arab and other groups that cease to become Arab. So there's a lot of flexibility yeah. in these um, ethnic markers, which are then also politicized, right? So like the Bashir finds it useful via the RSF, among other groups, the Janjaweed, Musa Halal's forces to politicize Arabness as a means of trying to control Darfur. So they're not sort of like, you know, historically immutable categories, they're politically changeable categories, but they also map on in these complicated ways to center periphery relations.
0: Okay, that's that's really interesting. And yeah, I I remember when I was in South Sudan, they would call it an onion conflict. As in there's not just one layer to the conflict, there are many. Right. it's linguistic, ethnic, political, racial, it's all of that mixed in together. Um yeah. so just my final question is on the ceasefire that was agreed to yesterday in the sense of how do you see that going forward? You already mentioned that there have been about nine already. Um, What do you see as the chances for that? And what do you think are the best chances for a resolution to the Civil War? Very loaded question.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I find it difficult to envisage an end to the Civil War, and obviously predictions are mugs game. Um, But I would say the... The reason that it's likely to be, or it's quite possible that it would be very entrenched, is the following. It seems very hard for SAF, the Sudan Armed Forces, to win Khartoum, the capital. They have air power, which is true, but yeah. they don't have the troops with experience of urban war that the RSF do. And the okay. RSF are entrenched inside Khartoum. Then the question is can you break? The supply lines of the rsf and that really i think becomes the central question of the war and at the moment they've bombed convoys coming from kortofan and coming from darfur and coming from further afield allegedly from haftar in libya and thus one would imagine with the um agreement of the uae but they haven't managed to block those supplies and as long as the rsf can get in supplies then it can hold in khartoum if it can hold in khartoum then SAF basically can't win the war. What it can do is try to exacerbate um existing ethnic cleavages in Darfur and create more conflict in Darfur. That conflict's already happening. But it seems hard to see them absolutely winning. But it also seems impossible for the RSF to win militarily. Because even okay. if it takes much of Khartoum, it's not going to be able to, like it has no like no base, no support in. Sudan in the east of the country, which is in the east of the country, in mm-hmm. Blue Nile, and the chairman of the rebel group in Blue Nile, Malik Agar, has just agreed to take um, Hemeti's position after he was dismissed from the Sub Supreme Council yesterday. So right okay. at the same time as there is a ceasefire signed, Burhan mm-hmm. at the same time dismisses Hemeti from the Supreme Council. So, I mean, dismisses Bye. him from his position as deputy on the Supreme Council, to be technically accurate. So, I, I don't see a really a way that it ends militarily, but I also don't necessarily see a way that it ends diplomatically because mm. you have to give Hemity an off ramp. Otherwise, why would he give up everything? And I think for Hemity and the RSF, this is really an existential conflict. Um any like peace negotiation would have to be on the basis of, the reabsorption of the RSF into SAF, into the Sudan, Sudanese army, which was what was on the table yeah. and before the conflict began, reawakening the very thing that caused the conflict. Hmm. On the other hand, for SAF, um, given it does, can't seem to take Khartoum, it doesn't seem that like it can win militarily either. Right. And it, but at the same time, it has very little interest in coming to the table until it decisively weakens RSF. And I think, oh. you know, if you put the conflict timeline at you know, like a hundred years, then ultimately we get an edging grudging SAF victory um, because simply it's, it is the state. And it the, the longer time goes on, I think the more the international community turns to SAF. Um, and I think there's already sort of implicit backing for Birhan, both from the Saudis, but also probably from at least parts of the State Department. Um, so I think the longer that they can carry on, the better the position they're in, but of course, fundamentally, what's you know horrifying about that is the worst position that Sudan is in, and with the possibility of imminent, very heavy flooding. Um, oh. I think the in in addition to the massive levels of inflation, food insecurity, there's basically no yeah. money supply. Um, the government is not working like it, it's a humanitarian catastrophe.
0: Right. Yeah, and I remember you. I think you were saying on another podcast that for Hamadi, it's now or never. Because if he right. loses a shot at being leader, he won't be able to get one in in 10 years. Yes, exactly. At least he's doing this, yeah. Um, so you don't believe that the current fire would hold? I don't. I, I kind of woke up and I thought that I would already have reports in front of me saying that it, it, it's not held already. But uh, yeah, 16, 18 hours is not <laughs> much to go on right now.
1: Well, I mean, I think we should also say that... Um the truth is not going to come into effect for 48 hours right so we're not there yet oh okay um, okay it will come into effect i think at something like or maybe we're now just like, we're just coming up it comes into effect at, at 8 p.m basically on monday night uk okay. time um okay. but even then like already it's not clear that people are in sufficient control of the violence in darfur for the violence to stop even if they did um stop the violence on the other hand well we've seen i think it's eight ceasefires and this is the ninth i don't see any structural reasons Um, for this ceasefire to hold and i think like it might hold um for a while but I, i i can't imagine that it like it would hold if either side saw um saw them um sort of like an actual military advantage right this is a chance to resupply I know that's not supposedly in the agreement but that's what they'll do um reorganize and you know like SAF is going to maintain control of the presidential palace I just don't think Burhan is going to allow that long term. Mm -hmm.
0: It's interesting from an international perspective um that a lot of inner civil war, especially a lot of emphasis is placed on who retains control of the capital city. So when the Taliban took over Kabul, that was kind of seen as, okay, now game over, they've won. Um And yet here, it doesn't seem like Khartoum is as important compared to in most other countries. Um And also the the sense of the peace agreement being, being the final thing. I remember you saying that in a lot of African countries, what ends up happening is that the peace agreement is just another way to continue the fighting and a peace agreement for in under international law carries a lot of weight because that implies a cessation of hostilities even if they haven't finished in fact so those those are the two things that i think are are very interesting and different about this conflict i think compared to compared to others around the world and and just make you realize how many how the nuance and the a deeper understanding of it is so Mm. important
1: yeah i think that's a really interesting point about um Khartoum. I mean, it's true that RSF haven't taken the city, right? Like, it's still contested by the Sudanese army. If they took the city, could they declare victory? No, I think there'd be a rebel government in exile in Port Sudan, right? And that would be where, anyway, they're trying, like, the army's trying to control humanitarian operations from. So I think that's, you know, the capital matters entirely and absolutely until it doesn't,
0: Mm. (laughs)
1: until until the international community decide that controlling the capital is not the marker, is not one of the markers of, um, is not one of the markers of sovereignty. Yeah, I think that's an really interesting point.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is a really interesting discussion, and I'm so glad that you could take the time out to be here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much. Uh, and to our viewers at home, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and please tune in for future episodes.